text for this morning's message is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to the end of the chapter. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will thwart. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your call, brethren. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast of the Lord. I meant to invite the visitors to our reception after this service. We have a A brief reception if you're visiting and would give us a chance to meet you personally through those double doors in the overflow room there for just a few minutes after the service. You're invited to come to that reception. I hope that you'll agree with me this morning as we begin that in order to love deeply, you have to hate something deeply. You can think of examples, I think. Um... If you love children deeply, you would surely need to hate child neglect and child abuse deeply. And if you love level-headed, clear-minded respect and kindness, you need to hate alcoholism and drug addiction. And if you love freedom, you need to hate slavery and totalitarianism. It just is a psychological necessity that if you're going to love something passionately and deeply, you must also respond with hatred toward that which ruins and replaces and destroys what you love. Now, the reason I begin with that comment is because I'm going to tell you that God hates something in a minute. And I know that if I were to just start out by talking about the hatred of God, we are so programmed that the term hate carries with it negative, unattractive, distasteful connotations about whoever's doing the hating. But I hope that having set the stage like this, you will hear the hatred of God as the echo of his Love. 
That is, you will recognize that the reason God hates anything is because he loves something so much. His hatred is the reflex of his love. The only reason I think any of us should ever hate anything is because we love something else more that's being ruined or destroyed by what we hate. Well, what God hates more than he hates anything else in all the universe is human pride. Even more, I believe, than angelic pride. Because we are so less likely candidates for it. God hates human pride. Proverbs 6.16. There are six things the Lord hates. Seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes stands at the head of the list. Psalm 101, verse 5, David speaks for God. The man of haughty looks, an arrogant heart, I will not endure. Proverbs 16, verse 5, everyone who is arrogant is an abomination to the Lord. Isaiah 2, verse 11, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low, the pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 31. Behold, I am against you, O proud one, says the Lord God of hosts. Jesus said in Luke 16, 15, what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And you remember that awful story in Acts chapter 12 where Herod comes forth with his royal robes on, preaches his political message to the crowds, and they say, the voice of a, of a God and not of a man. And Herod receives it, and God kills him with worms eaten on the inside. And Luke comments, because he did not give glory to God, but kept it for himself. God hates human pride with omnipotent hatred. Now, that is the bottom line problem at Corinth. To show you that, I want to take you on a whirlwind tour of these two letters to Corinth. And I would suggest you not even bother trying to turn the pages with me because I'm going to go too fast and skip too much space in between. But ask yourself these two questions as I read these texts. Number one, is pride? The root problem at Corinth. And number two, what is the essence of this pride? Verse 29 of chapter 1. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Verse 31. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 7. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Verse 21 of chapter 3, so let no one boast of men. Chapter 4, verse 6, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Verse 7, if then you received it, why do you boast as though it were not a gift? Chapter 4, verse 18, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. Chapter 5, verse 2, and you are arrogant about your immorality. Chapter 8, verse 1, knowledge puffs up 
Love builds up. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Love is not jealous or boastful. It is not arrogant or rude. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. Paul says hardship comes upon him and brings him to the brink of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Chapter 3, verse 5. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. Our sufficiency is from God. Chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the surpassing power might belong to God and not to us. Chapter 12, verse 9, I will all the more gladly boast in my weaknesses that the power of Christ might rest upon me. God hates pride. And it is the root problem at Corinth because it is the root problem everywhere and in every heart. Now, what is the essence of it? Did you hear We just went around the congregation right now and I said, give me some sentences that would describe the essence of human pride that God hates. I think you would do it something like this. You'd say, it's boasting in self instead of boasting in the Lord. It's taking credit ourselves for what only God can achieve. It's relying upon ourselves and our own wisdom and power instead of God's wisdom and power. It's feeling sufficient in ourselves instead of resting in the sufficiency of God. It's the disinclination to admit that we are clay pots and earthen vessels so that another will get the glory. It's the disinclination to want to boast in weaknesses so that Christ's power is magnified. We know what pride is. We know what God hates. Now, what's the beautiful thing? that is being destroyed and ruined by pride, that prompts him to hate pride so deeply? What is being ruined, replaced, distorted, mangled? The heart that boasts in the Lord is being destroyed. The heart that relies upon God and not itself is being destroyed. The heart that wants to get glory for God rather than getting glory for itself. The heart that wants to give him credit for what he alone can do instead of taking credit for it ourselves. That's what's being destroyed. That's what God loves and that's why he hates pride. Now, if you have been tracking along with Christian hedonism, you'll see that in loving a heart that boasts in the Lord, God loves what also gives deepest satisfaction to us. We were made to boast in God. We were made to give him credit for what he's done. We were made to rely upon him. We were made to magnify him by our weaknesses and his strengths. It's the source of all joy, this boasting in God. It's the source of lasting satisfaction. If God were to delight in anything less than a heart that boasts in him alone, he would be an idolater and a killjoy. I say killjoy because 
The pathway of pride leads straight to destruction. Pride goes before a fall, both temporally and eternally. God would be an eternal killjoy if he did not oppose pride. You know, the crazy thing about us humans is that we were made to boast. I really believe that. We were made to boast. And then sin came into the world. And from then on, we have hated to boast in God. Sin and pride are that power that that drags down our capacity for boasting from the galaxies of God's glory and directs it towards the gutters of human achievement. And I don't care whether that achievement is the building of a church, the writing of a symphony, the launching of a rocket, or the healing of a disease. It is compared to the glory of God, a gutter compared to a galaxy. And pride is saying to us again and again, take that capacity you've been given to boast and like little uh, tentacles on a caterpillar or fangs on a snake, direct it in to yourself and kill yourself with it. That's what Satan says every day. Boast in what you can do. Boast in what you can achieve. Boast in what you can associate with. God hates that pride because he loves you. And I want to guide you through a a thought process in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to 31, which comes to a climax in verse 31. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. What really I'm doing this morning, and what, what I believe Paul is doing is trying to lay out for you the pathway that leads from bondage to self-adulation, self-gratification, and boasting in self to lead you through some truth steps to the place where you can be the kind of person who with the deepest satisfaction imaginable forever and ever boasts in the Lord alone. That's what I want to try to do. There are five steps in Paul's argument here. Let's take them one at a time, not in the order that they occur, but rather in the order that moves from the most basic to the most uh, primary or final. Step number one, Paul simply states the broad fact that all human beings want to boast in something, but not God. Verse 22. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Let's just stop right there. Signs are the display of power. Wisdom is the eloquent display of intellect in Paul's context here. And so what he's saying most generally and basically is that some people get their strokes from power and some people get their strokes from smarts. Intellect. And you can get it directly by trying to be that kind of person, be smart, be powerful, be beautiful, or indirectly by associating with somebody who is when you're not. 
You could boast in a World Series baseball team, though you didn't play on it. Had absolutely nothing to do with it. You could boast in your alma mater. You could boast in the company you work for. You could boast in a friend who happens to be a little better than you are and you know him. You could boast in your religion. You could boast in your church or switch it. Pride can do things through tractor pulls, through rockets that go to the moon, through motorcycles, biceps that look like grapefruits. Or if you're a woman, the power of a figure, advanced degrees, published articles, merit scholarships, savvy in the market, or the ability to win at trivial pursuit. People will, will grasp at anything to say, I did it. I'm good at this. Notice me. Applaud me. Paul says the Greeks craved eloquent displays of intelligence and the Jews craved displays of power. One man says, show me what you can do with your mind. And another man says, show me what you can do with your body. Nobody, nobody, nobody says, show me God. Apart from the Holy Spirit, nobody ever says, show me God. That's step number one. The whole world is out for glory, but not in God. Step number two, Paul affirms what the whole world denies, namely the superiority of God over all the power and wisdom in the world. Look at verse 25. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than than men. In other words, it's a tragedy. It's a great tragedy when your God-given capacity for boasting terminates beneath God. Because God is greater than anything you would terminate on under Him. So it's a great tragedy. And, and Paul wants to make this step so... Um, firm and gripping in our heart that he risks some very offensive language. I mean, if Christian hedonism is risky language, this is very risky language to say that the weakness of God is stronger than men and the foolishness of God is wiser than men. That means that when God is as foolish as he can be, He's smarter than all the university professors in the world put together. And when God is as weak as he possibly can be, he is stronger than all the bombs that we have amassed in this country and in Russia. When he condescends to put a little child on his lap in weakness, he holds the molecules of that child's hair in being by the thought of his mind. When he condescends in weakness to let himself be smacked across the face, blindfolded, mocked, hit with rods, crowned with thorns, nailed to a cross, run through with a spear. You know what's happening in that moment of weakness? 
All the hosts of darkness are being destroyed. Millions of sins are being covered. And the name of Almighty God is being vindicated once and for all. When he is weak, then is he omnipotent in saving power. How foolish of us to put our boasting in man when God offers himself in omnipotent glory and beauty and wisdom and power for the object and satisfaction of our God-given capacity to exalt and boast and brag. Step number three, what do you do with people like us who are prone to crave and pursue our own applause through what we can achieve? Verse 19 It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever. I will thwart or frustrate. Verse 21 says it another way. Since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now, did you notice that? Let me read that first part again, because that's so crucial. In the wisdom of God. Or you could translate, by the wise decision of God, the world did not know God through its wisdom. Now, let me paraphrase that for you in words that might bring it up today. God's wise decision has been to blockade every road that man has ever built to glory. God has chosen in his wisdom to blockade every road that we build to glory and to direct us onto one hard road and narrow gate that leads to glory with a cross in the middle of the gate. And you can see why it is so humiliating for man to have to go onto this hard road and this narrow gate and face that cross. There are two ways now. Did you notice them? There are two ways that God destroys the wisdom of man. One, by blockading man's wise and strong attempts to achieve glory, satisfaction, and fulfillment. He cuts them off at every turn. A man spends 30 years of his life trying to get to the top of his company, and then he jumps off of a bridge or leaves his wife and starts over with a little chick because it didn't satisfy after all. God cuts you off at every turn when you pursue satisfaction by means of your own strength and your own wisdom. By his wisdom, man will never find God by man's wisdom. The second way that he cuts off our pride and brings to naught our strength is by making the cross the way to glory. Look at verse 30. God is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. In other words, if there's going to be any wisdom or righteousness, it's going to be from Christ crucified. Now, you can picture how humiliating this would be. I want you to picture a, uh, an American businessman 
dressed to the hilt, well-groomed, arriving on the scene in Jerusalem with his BMW. Gets out of the car and a man meets him and says, come with me, I want to show you something. And he brings him out the gate to the garbage heap of the city where there's a post, a post, and a thin, naked man covered with blood hanging on this post with nails through his wrists and hands and heaving to try to get his last breaths. And he says to this uh, businessman, this is your righteousness and your wisdom and your sanctification and your redemption. This, sir, is true success. Now, you get down on your knees and you throw yourself on the mercy of this man. Now, what's going to happen? That? You want me to bow down before that heap of bloody flesh? Who do you think I am? You see the way I'm dressed? Did you see the car I came in? Do you know how much money I make a year? Do you know who I work for? What do you think I am, a dog? A worm? We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and stupidity to American Gentiles. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And so in his wisdom, God cuts us off at the pass and stops us in our route towards destruction. Why? Because he hates us? Does God frustrate people in their quest for satisfaction by means of pride because he hates them? Pride is a decorated dead-end street. When he puts signs in the way and blockades that street, it isn't because he hates. Except pride. Step number four, and this is a warning. There are not many powerful, shrewd people who respond to the word of the cross. Verse 20. Where is the wise man? Paul stands in the church and looks around. Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? And he answers his own question. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? He says the same thing even more powerfully in verses 26 to 28. Consider your call, brethren. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. In other words... God first blockaded the road to glory that we have built by our own strength and wisdom. Secondly, he directed us toward a new road called the Calvary Road and a gate where the cross stands, where we must die with Christ. And then third, he moves sovereignly through the world, blowing where he wills and awakens the heart of the lowly, the despised, the ill-born, the poor. And a few 
rich and high-born and classy, lest anybody say he cannot save whom he wills. Why does he do this? Well, that's the last step, and it's an invitation. It's stated in verse 29 and and verse 31. One is negative and one is positive, and this is the fifth step where I want to end. Verse 29 says, He does it so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's the negative. Positively, verse 31, Therefore, as it is written, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. I close this morning by appealing to you to wake up. Doesn't it seem obvious to you, having heard this, that you were made to boast in God? I mean, even if you believe in God simply, you have to know yourself as a creature utterly dependent upon God. And if you're utterly dependent upon God as a creature, how much more as a sinner? And therefore, you were made to depend on God, not yourself. You were made for God, to boast in Him alone. And you can taste. Can you not taste how satisfying that would be just to live for God alone? To boast in Him and to stop questing after more evidences of your own wisdom and strength and trying to get applause from other people. To just decisively turn your back on all of that that you've lived for all these years and to face Christ crucified and let yourself be just swept up and killed, as it were. I am crucified with Christ. Do you remember what Paul said in Galatians 6.14? He said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I have been crucified to the world. I invite you, I urge you, I beseech you to come to Christ and die this morning. Because you know, you've tasted In some dark night's moment, you have seen a glimpse of the fact that on the other side of the cross, when you've died to yourself, there is a new identity in Jesus Christ that is absolutely ravishing in its satisfaction and righteousness. Let's pray together that God would work that among us right now. Oh, Father in heaven, as we close this service, I just long for no one to remain trapped in the bondage of sin and pride which you hate and which will destroy their soul. But Lord, I beg you, would you call, would you save, would you beget anew, would you quicken and awaken? Come, Holy Spirit, and perform the miracle of making the cross not folly, not a stumbling block, but the very beauty, wisdom, power, and glory of Yourself. May we see the galaxies of Your glory echoed, reflected in the bloody Redeemer. And I would urge you, If you've not made that decisive turn against sin and against self, that you do it. And if you would like to pray, David and I have been praying and talking this morning. We would be happy any time this afternoon to meet with you. Let's stand for closing prayer.